0: Well, I hope you've had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. We had a great time with with family and friends, and um, it's uh, always a wonderful week to get together and kind of really launches the the Christmas season. We'll begin a a Christmas series next week of three messages leading up to Advent. But I got a a couple of uh, slides I ran across for Thanksgiving I thought you might relate to this morning here, how I feel after Thanksgiving. Maybe some of us here today. The thing I'm most thankful for right now is elastic waistbands. That was good on uh, Thanksgiving Day remember to set your scales back 10 pounds this weekend you can always just cheat and do that you'll feel a lot better um it's cute how food labels think there are eight servings in a pie you know that's uh that's way off I thought this would be good for baby dedication today did i eat why did i eat so much food I and mean, then this last one's my favorite one i love this maybe just one more piece of pie it's our buddy at the hut there it's about how i felt on thursday evening but Well, it's been a week of thanksgiving here at Faith Bible Church, and we're grateful for that, but it's also been a great week of dedication. Uh, Last Sunday, we dedicated our new building to the Lord, and I think in uh, two weeks, this lobby is going to be completely finished, Lord willing, so we're looking forward to that. Uh, But this morning, we witnessed parents dedicating their children to the Lord, and so in light of this, I thought I'd bring a message from um, Mark chapter uh, 10, verses 13 to 16. So if you'll take your Bible and turn there with me, uh, to Mark chapter 10. i want to bring a message this morning I've titled, uh, Little Ones to Him Belong. And I've never preached this text before at, at church on a Sunday morning, and I've never preached it really in conjunction with a baby dedication, although this is one of the, the main passages we use uh, really to uh, justify our dedica- dedication of children. But I want to do that this morning, uh, go through this passage, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. Let me uh, read these verses for us. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands upon them. So reads God's inspired word. Uh, There's some very important lessons in these verses here this morning to us about uh, ministry to children and to young people. Uh, But there's one main overarching message I don't want us to miss in this passage this morning, and that is the requirement for entering God's kingdom is childlike faith. The one requirement to enter God's kingdom, to have eternal life, to enter into heaven, is childlike faith. So really Jesus is telling us here this morning in this passage that these children we've seen here this morning on stage, these children uh, being presented to the Lord are a powerful illustration to all of us of what's required to have eternal life, of what's required to be saved. Now, let me put this text in its context here this morning. As we see this passage talking about Jesus relating to children, go back for just a moment to chapter 9 of Mark, uh, verse 36 and 37, And there the disciples are arguing about who's greatest in the kingdom. And then Jesus, in verse 36, it says, taking a child, which, by the way, this is kind of interesting, Jesus may have had children around him a lot. He may have been ringed by children very often and had families following him. It just happens to be a child there. He takes a child set him before them and taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So in chapter 10 here, now this is Jesus' second passage in Mark uh, on children. Also in chapter uh, 10 verses 1 to 12, Jesus gives a teaching here on marriage and divorce. And so following after that in verses 13 to 16, he talks about children. So again, there's a natural flow here, a sequence where Jesus moves from marriage now uh, to children. But I think maybe most importantly in the context, these verses, verses 13 to 16, are followed by the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, These verses prepare us for that story where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus And says good teacher what thing must i do to have eternal life so we're going to see a juxtaposition here between these children and this rich ruler because it's interesting in matthew mark and luke the story of jesus blessing the children in each case precedes jesus encounter with this rich young ruler so these two stories are um, intentionally juxtaposed to show us a contrast In these verses, Jesus receives these children, but in the next verses, he rejects the rich man who rejects him. We're going to see here the lesson of what we have to do to have eternal life. Now, I've got three simple points to unpack these four verses this morning. I want to look at the rebuke, and then the response, and then the requirement. Uh, Beginning in verse 13, we have what I call the rebuke. It says, "...and they were bringing children to him." Now, when we see the word they, we immediately ask ourselves, well, who's they who are bringing these children? Now, most of the time, we would probably assume this is mothers. In fact, all the pictures I've seen of this, usually it's mothers bringing these children to Jesus. And that's usually kind of the picture that we have in our mind. Uh, But here in this verse, the pronoun they is part of the verb bringing. But at the end of the verse, it says the disciples rebuked them, and the word them there is a masculine pronoun. So the significance of this is that while we automatically presume a picture of mothers bringing their children to the Lord, it was really the fathers that were bringing them. Now, it probably included the mother and the older children as well. So you really have fathers and their families bringing these little children to the Lord uh, to bless them. So clearly in this context, these fathers are the spiritual leaders of their children and their families. These fathers were the ones who took responsibility to see that the the well-being and their spiritual growth of their children uh, was taking place. And of course, that's a very simple message here this morning to every father. You need to bring your children to Jesus. You need to dedicate your family to him. You need to, to lead your family in dedication and commitment to Christ. There may be some of you here and you say, well, yeah, I'm 60 or 70 years old now. You still have profound influence upon your children, even if they're adults. You have profound influence upon uh, your grandchildren. And so as men of God, we need to, to rise up and, and lead our families in dedication and commitment to Jesus Christ, no matter what age we might be. Now, why did they bring these children to Jesus? Notice it says here, so that he might touch them. And then we see down in verse 16, Jesus took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Uh, Matthew 19, the parallel passage to this, says they brought these children that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Now this was a customary thing in that day because children were often taken to rabbis, well-known rabbis or teachers, to have that rabbi or teacher pronounce a blessing over them. I mean, it was a Jewish custom that that went all the way back to the patriarch Jacob, all the way back in in the book of Genesis. Jacob put his hands on the heads of his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and uh, he blessed them. And every year on the eve of the Day of Atonement, the most holy day in the nation of Israel, Jewish elders and scribes would bless children who were brought to them. So they're bringing these children to Jesus, a well-known teacher and a rabbi to bless them. Now the word children here that Mark uses can refer to someone who's an infant all the way up to preteen years. In fact, in, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 39, he uses this word to refer to a girl who's 12 years old. But generally it referred to younger children and Luke in his account of this uses a word that refers to infants or babies. So probably the majority of these are smaller children because in verse 16 it says that Jesus took them in his arms. So these are probably mainly smaller children or infants that are brought to Jesus. Now something I want to address here just for a moment, I don't want to get off on this on too long of a tangent, but this passage is often used by Catholics and mainline Protestants to defend the idea of infant baptism. Um, Even John Calvin used this passage that we're looking at here this morning to defend infant baptism. Now, to me, that's quite a stretch. Um, This passage is not about baptism, it's about blessing. And that's why here at our church, we dedicate or bless children like we did here this morning rather than baptizing them. Um, As one preacher said in Mark 10, 13 to 16, there's not a drop of water in this text. Baptism's not mentioned. There's nothing in these verses about infant baptism. In fact, I don't think there's anything in the New Testament about infant baptism. Uh, there's a guy years ago I heard about, he wrote this book, and the title with him it says about infant baptism. and It's kind of a thick book, and then you opened it up, and all the pages were blank. So it's kind of a smart aleck way for him to show that the, the New Testament really doesn't teach infant baptism. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher, put it like this. He said, I might as well prove vaccination from this text as infant baptism. In other words, his idea is it's a, it's a real stretch. Uh, think about this for a moment. That's why we call it believer's baptism. It's believers that get baptized. You don't get baptized to become a believer or before you're a believer as a little baby. Now, baptism is an outward sign of an inward profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You get baptized because you are a believer. And of course, baptism doesn't save us. The only thing that can wash away our sins is the blood of Christ that was shed for us. First John chapter one says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from sin. So really the, the, the pertinent question for all of us here this morning is when did you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Sometimes you'll talk to somebody and they'll say, well, I was baptized as an infant or you got baptized when I was six years old or 12 years old. The real question, though, is not when you were baptized. The question is, when did you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone to be your savior? Now, I hope that you were baptized after that. That's important. But the key issue is when did we put our trust and our faith um, in Jesus Christ? Now, the end of verse 13 here, the the disciples are rebuking these fathers and these families as they come uh, to Jesus. The disciples are hindering access of these families uh, to Jesus. They're telling these families, uh, basically, you don't get to see Jesus today. Uh, The the disciples are kind of like, they see themselves as Jesus' political handlers, kind of like bouncers to see who gets uh, to see Jesus, who gets access to him. This is a sad side here because these disciples, the gatekeepers to the kingdom, are forbidding and blocking access to Jesus. So these disciples aren't a bridge to Jesus which they should be, but they're actually a barrier. The followers of Jesus are preventing other people from being blessed by him. Now this is a sad side. Now now the text doesn't tell us why the disciples were doing this. But I think you know, we can read in the, the, the Gospels, we know enough about the disciples to know probably what was going on here. One of the things could have been they didn't want an infringement on Jesus' time. In other words, Jesus can't be bothered with these kind of trivialities. He needs to, to save his time for more important people. So the disciples probably saw themselves as kind of protecting Jesus from these nobodies who would monopolize his time. So Jesus has more important things to do. It may have also been that the children would, would be disruptive. You know, we've all been around family probably over Thanksgiving, and we'll be around them over the Christmas holidays, and having kids around, I mean, there's a lot of action, a lot of energy going on, and the disciples may have simply not wanted the disruption of these children. Uh, we also know about the disciples from the, from, from the Gospels. They often had an exaggerated sense of self-importance, and they could have you know, seen themselves as kind of, hey, we're here, the guys, to protect Jesus, and Uh, But whatever the reason, the disciples here are rude and wrong for what they do. Uh, Jesus had just used children as an example to refer to the kingdom back in Mark chapter 9, and they didn't get the lesson. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this this morning. Some of you know this, but the cultural view in that day is children were not as important Now Children are exalted in our families today, and much time and effort and love is lavished upon them, but they were really devalued in the ancient world. They were seen as, you know, kind of not that important until they could get to the age where they could do something and produce in some way to help the family. And so Jesus here in a beautiful way is reversing that cultural attitude. And you and I need to do all we can to remove hindrances for people uh, coming to Jesus Christ, especially children and young people. Children and young people in our culture are facing more and more obstacles and hindrances. And you and I need to help them come uh, to Jesus Christ. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning are we like the disciples, or do we have time for children, our own children? our grandchildren, other children in our families, and the children of this church? Are we hindering or helping children come to Christ? Whatever we do, we don't want to hinder young people or children from coming to Jesus. Now, there's a lot of ways we can do that today. One is by simply failing to recognize their sinfulness and their need for Christ some people, I think they look at their wonderful little child and they have this idea that, you know, this child is so wonderful and innocent, they really don't need Christ as their Savior. Well, wait till they get older, I'd say that, but you'll find out, right? As beautiful and, and precious as small children are, they're sinful and they have a need for Christ as their Savior. We need to recognize that. And we can hinder them coming to Christ by failing to pray for them. One thing I can honestly say that I do every day is I I have a lot of things I pray for, but I pray for all three of my grandchildren by name every day that God will save them and bring them uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. We need to pray for them. Uh, We we can hinder them by failing to bring them to church, to be with God's people and to to regularly hear the word of God and the gospel. Uh, We can hinder our children from coming to Christ by failing to provide for them an example. None of us are perfect, but if our children hear us constantly saying one thing at church but living another way at home in private, our children can sniff out that hypocrisy very quickly. And God help us if we're a stumbling block in our children coming to Christ because we're living a, a life of hypocrisy. Look, you and I need to seize every opportunity we have to spend time with our children and our grandchildren and pour our lives to them. And to do the same thing with Children in our families and uh, the young children in this church that we can minister to. Uh, Max Lucado, in, in one of his books, it's the book titled God Came Near, he tells a story about when his young daughter almost died tragically in and in a drowned in a swimming pool, and that the effect that had on him, kind of a wake up call. He says this He says, We were having Sunday lunch at the home of a fellow missionary family. This is back when Max Lucado was a missionary. He said, it was after the meal and I was in the kitchen while Dental and my wife and our friends Paul and Debbie were talking in the living room. Their three-year-old daughter, Beth Ann, was playing with our two-year-old Jenna in the front yard. All of a sudden, Beth Ann rushed in with a look of panic on her face and said, Jenna is in the pool. Paul was the first to arrive at the poolside. He went straight into the water. Dentalin was next to arrive. By the time I arrived, Paula lifted her up out of the water to the extended hands of her mother. She was simultaneously choking, crying, and coughing. She vomited a belly full of water. I held her as she cried. Dentalin began to weep, and I began to sweat. For the rest of the day, I couldn't hold her enough. I, I still can't thank God enough for that. It was only a matter of minutes, maybe seconds. We almost lost her. The thought was numbing and convicting. But he says it was a wake-up call. I and mean, here's what he says. Over time, you, you can become too busy to notice your children There's always next summer to coach the team, next month to go to the lake, next week to teach Johnny how to pray. You'll forget that the faces around your table will soon be at tables of their own, and that's a profound statement. It's easy to forget when your children are little that the faces around your table will soon be at tables of their own, leading their own family. Hence, books will go unread, games will go unplayed, hearts will go unnurtured, and opportunities will go ignored. All because, this is is good, the poison of the ordinary has deadened your senses to the magic of the moment. Before you know it, the little face that brought brought tears to your eyes in the delivery room has become common. A common kid sitting in the back seat of your van as you whiz down the fast lane of life. Unless something changes, unless someone wakes you up, that common kid will become a common stranger. Maybe you need that wake-up call here this morning. If we're not careful, the ordinary can deaden our senses to the magic of moments with our children and grandchildren. And that's what happened to the disciples here, and they missed the magic of the moment of these children coming to Jesus. Now, this rebuke of the disciples is met immediately by the response of Jesus. We see in verse 14, act two in this drama, the disciples may be waiting to hear Jesus say, hey, good work, fellas. You know, thanks for keeping those nobodies away from me. I'm kind of tired today. But what does it say? Jesus was indignant. And the word means to arouse to anger or literally to vent anger. I mean, Jesus was boiling over. So the rebuke of these parents was met with Jesus rebuke of their rebuke. So Jesus rebukes the rebukers. He he scolds the scolders in this account. And he says, permit the children to come to me. Now, the old King James says, suffer the little children uh, to come to me. But we see here that children are dear to the heart of Jesus. We need to receive children and bring them to Christ. Jesus treasured young people and children. Jesus loves the little children, and he gave them time. That's one of the things they need from us more than anything else. He's telling us here that children and young people count. And Jesus' heart is big enough to take in the littlest and the least. So with these words, let the children come to me, Jesus tells us that child evangelism and ministry to children must be a priority. We need to put a, a premium and a priority on ministry to children. And this means that as, as, as individuals and as families and as a church, we need to prioritize ministry on their behalf. When you think about church history, uh, Christians have been and are on the forefront of protecting children. Think about how Christians are involved uh, against the scourge of abortion and uh, sex trafficking of children. And child poverty and education of children and discipling them. In mean, the, the service before this one at 9 30, we had a, a young lady here who's fostered two young children and now has adopted them. And she was up here this morning dedicating them to the Lord uh, with her parents. But we get this from Jesus' care and his concern. He set the example for how we treat children. Of course, here at our church, we've prioritized that. We just built 35,000 square feet of new space for our children and for our young people. As Jay mentioned last week, every Sunday morning here, one out of four people here are 11 years old and under. That's a great blessing to our church, but it's also a great responsibility to us. So let me ask you, do you have time for children, the children in your life and for other people's children, Uh, to babysit them maybe and help a a couple who needs some time away? Uh, Working in the nursery with VBS, helping with Awana, I know we say this a lot at the church, but it's true, and it can't be said often enough. If you're looking for something to do at church, go to the children's area or go up there in the area where our young people gather. Jesus said, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus loves other little children, and we need to do all we can to reach children and young people for Christ. The Barna statistics uh, on this are really interesting Barna found this a few years ago. Nearly half of all Americans who accept Christ as their Savior do so so before reaching the age of 13. It's 43%. So 43% of all born-again Christians in America, it was 13 or under. And two out of three born-again Christians, 64%, made the commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. So basically two-thirds of people who are saved in America do it before the age of 18. One out of eight born-again people make their profession of faith in the years 18 to 21. Less than one out of four embrace Christ after their 21st birthday. Now, certainly God can save people at any age. God can save someone who's nine years old. He can save someone who's 90 years of age. It's a sovereign work of God in the heart of a person. But it's interesting, and statistics bear this out, and probably all this would, all of us would bear this out in our own experience and with our own children. The vast majority of people who are born again come to faith in Christ under the age of 18. I like the way Adrian Rogers put it years ago. He highlighted the importance of coming to Christ early in life. He said, the longer you wait to come to Christ, the more sin you have to repent of, the less time you have to repent, and you have a harder heart to repent with. That's pretty well said, isn't it? The longer you wait, you have more sin to repent of. You have less time to repent, and you have a harder heart with which to repent. We need to reach children and young people early uh, in their lives. Uh, The great evangelist D.L. Moody was coming back once from a tent revival, and uh, someone asked him, how many got saved tonight? And he said, two and a half. And they said, what do you mean, two adults and one child? He said, no, I mean two children and one adult because he said, when you save a child, you save a life, you save a whole life. You think about that, when a child comes to faith in Christ, there's an entire life there that can be given uh, to Christian service. Gypsy Smith, the great evangelist years ago, put it like this, he said, you save an old man or an old woman and you save a unit, but you save a boy or a girl and you save a multiplication table. They have the opportunity to go out in their life and multiply that influence of the gospel uh, in their life. So that's why ministry to children is a priority for us here at Faith Bible Church. And I'm so grateful for uh, Connie Goodson and for her staff and all they do in our children's ministry, for Justin Kinsley and Addie uh, Zander and all they do in our student ministries. I mean, all the years that my wife and I have been at this church, uh, Cheryl has, has committed herself to children's ministry. She helps now at 9.30, sometimes she, has to help. she helps at 11 as well. She helped start Awana here years ago and has been leading her group there for, for many, many years. That's been a burden on her heart, and uh, because of that, it's a burden on my heart as well. But You and I need to be concerned about our own children, our grandchildren, the children in our extended families, and also the children um, in this church that God's put under our care. Well, down in verse 16, it says that Jesus took these children in his arms and he began blessing them. He's probably hugging and embracing these children and he's laying his hands upon them and he's dedicating them uh, to the Lord. So we have here the rebuke of the disciples. We have the response of Jesus, but Jesus now uses this encounter to illustrate the requirement in verse 15. Jesus said that children are representative, that is, they picture the kind of people who are part of God's kingdom. Receiving eternal life and receiving or entering the kingdom, I think, are synonyms. All these terms of entering God's kingdom, um, entering into eternal life, or receiving eternal life, all of those, I think, are synonyms, and they refer to the idea uh, of salvation. They're, They're used synonymously that way in the Gospels. Now, the problem for us is we often get this backwards. We act like a child has to become an adult to be saved. We think a child has to become like a theologian and know all this great truth to be saved. But Jesus says that he's actually looking for adults who will become like children to be saved. In fact, in in, uh, Matthew 18, verse 3, Jesus put it like this, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't turn, if you're not converted, and become like a child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we see that we're to become like a child to to enter God's kingdom, often we see this as character. You often hear people say this, well, it's willingness to trust. You know, children are, are very willing to trust. They're very trusting." Or people often say that this refers to humility. Or they'll often say that this refers to innocence, you know, that children are innocent. Well, they're innocent in one sense, but they're not innocent in another sense, right? I mean, they're they're, they're born with a sin nature. Jesus isn't focused here on the child's character. And this is very important in verse 15. Notice what he says. Whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. The focus here is not on the character of a child so much as how a child receives something. And Jesus' point here is that children are small, they're weak, they're helpless, they're unimportant, and they're the epitome of the needy. They're entirely dependent upon others is the point Jesus is making here. And a little child is totally dependent on parents. Little kids can't drive, they can't make money. They, When they're really little, they can't change their diaper. They can't feed themselves. As they get a little bit older, they want a, a light on at night because they're afraid. They come small and helpless and powerless with zero status. Children bring nothing but empty hands. They have no resources to offer. They only know how to reach out and receive help. That's all they know how to do. And Jesus says, That's how you come to me. If you want to enter into my kingdom, that's the only way to come. One writer puts it like this. This is really good. He says, in this story, children are not blessed for their virtues, but what they lack. They come only as they are, small, powerless, without sophistication. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, no claims. A little child has nothing to bring and whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in himself or herself. And I love this. Little children are model disciples for only empty hands can be filled. So Jesus is telling us the kingdom of God belongs to the weak and the helpless and the dependent. That's what he's saying here. We come to God with empty hands with childlike faith in Him. Children receive everything they receive uh, by grace. And in the same way salvation is received, it's not earned. Notice in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, it's not merited. We don't get into the kingdom of God by what we do. It's by knowing your helplessness and receiving salvation as a gift. In other words, it's not about achieving, but it's about receiving. Phil Riken, I was reading his commentary on Luke this week on this passage. He gives this quote. This is really good. i would never thought of this before. He said, the Bible never talks about adults of God. It always calls us children of God. And that's pretty good, isn't it? We're never called the adults of God. We're always called the children of God. And he said, and that is what, you, that is what we are if only we will come to Jesus in needy dependence to receive his grace by faith. We have to receive the kingdom of God on that basis or you'll never, ever get in. What does Jesus say in verse 15? I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child. And here in the Greek, it's a double negative. Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never, ever enter into it at all. You're never, ever going to get in if you don't come this way. It's a double negative. Now, we're not going to take a lot of time to look at this this morning, but let me just mention this. You might go on and read it on your own. What's the very next section about a rich, young ruler, a man that's got it all? He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He's a man with status and importance and independence. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, go sell everything you have and follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't telling him to go sell everything he has as a work. What Jesus is doing is he's challenging this man to see if he really trusts in him. Because the only way he's going to go sell everything he has and follow Jesus is if he really trusts in him. So he's calling this man to trust him. But as you read that story, it's one of the saddest stories in the Bible. The man turns away from entering the kingdom of God because he refuses to come as a child. The problem with the rich young ruler is he does the opposite of what Jesus says. He comes with full hands. His hands are full of possessions and good works and status, and he refuses to empty his hands and come to Jesus Christ as one who's needy and dependent. We sang that song earlier this morning. One of my favorite old songs, Rock of Ages. Some great theology in that song. Uh, one verse that says, Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I claim. And that's the message of our text here this morning. We come to Christ empty-handed like a child. If we don't come that way, We're never, ever going to enter the kingdom of God. In his book, Why I'm a Christian, John Stott tells a a story of a man named Dr. John Duncan. He was a professor of Hebrew and Semitic languages at Edinburgh University in Scotland all the way back in the 1800s. And he was a very brilliant man, and because of his familiarity with the Hebrew language and literature, he was affectionately known by his students as Rabbi Duncan. They called him Rabbi John Duncan. And he was so proficient in Hebrew that some of his students felt sure that he said his prayers at night in the Hebrew language. And so two of them were determined to find out if this was true. So they crept outside his bedroom door one night and listened carefully. They expected to hear some great flights and flourishes of of Hebrew uh, rhetoric or mysticism. But they heard him get down on his knees beside his bed, and the great Rabbi Duncan prayed this prayer. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child." pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. That's how we come to Jesus. We come like a child, nothing to give, no status, helpless, needy. We have no credits. We have no clout. We have no claims. We come to him empty-handed, casting ourselves completely upon his mercy. That's the only way to have eternal life, enter into God's kingdom. Look Between now and Christmas, all of us are probably going to have time to spend with some small children. Maybe it's children of your own or grandchildren, nieces and nephews, or children of friends. Um, I've had a lot of time to do that this last week. We're with our our families a lot, and I have a, a new grandson. He's five months old named Reed, and I get every chance I can to hold him, get him away from whoever's got him, and hold him for a bit, and have him on my knee and look at him. As I was studying this passage, obviously this week, preparing for this message, A couple of different times I had him on my knees, and they're kind of bouncing around looking at him into his face. And I thought to myself as I looked into his face, that's me. That's what God wants me to be like, just like him. He's needy. He has to have somebody do everything for him. He just sits there and smiles at you about what he does. But he's needy. And I thought, you know, it'd be a good assignment for all of us to think about something to do these next few weeks between now and Christmas, Take a child, again, your own child, a grandchild, a niece, a nephew, um, someone in your, in your extended family, a little child, and put them on your, on your knee or hold them there in your arms. and Look into their eyes for a moment. Just think to yourself, that's me. That's what I'm like. That's me. And God, thank you for receiving me as a little child as I've come to you, needy and helpless, empty-handed, to take Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Well, let's pray together. If you've never come to Christ that way, I want to give you the opportunity this morning to do it. Look, this is the beauty and the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's so simple, people stumble over it. You come to Jesus as one who's needy. Come this morning with empty hands, as we sang in that song. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Cling to Jesus, the one who died on the cross for your sins, the one who rose again from the dead believe in him and trust in him. Take him to be your savior. Father, I pray for those of us who know you that will have this message on our lips to share with others. As we go into this Advent season, people are thinking a lot about Jesus and his birth, and we have this wonderful, beautiful, simple message to tell them about a savior who's come. We come to him with nothing, and he gives us everything. Father, I pray that as individuals and as a church you'll move us to love children and young people, not to see them ever as a bother or a distraction, but to give them time and to give them resources and to encourage them and let them know that they count. And Father, that we would receive them and we would help them in every way that we can to come to you. Oh, Father, empower us, we pray, for this great task you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.